Do you ever just take a step back and think, wow, this year, this year has been something else? Today, by the way, is Friday, June 5th, and it has been a week. I need a good cry, a long hug, a place to scream, and a long nap. What about you? Hi and hello. You found the podcast for moms who don't have time for podcasts. You can think of me as your internet bestie as we share recommendations, laugh about the ridiculous things we see online, and cheer each other on. I'm Indiana Adams, and today, by the way, is the short and sweet podcast that hopefully brightens your day. I am so glad you're here. In the fall of 2013, I had been gaining some weight around my midsection, despite still nursing Caroline, who wasn't even one yet. I hadn't had a period in a few years at that point due to pregnancy and nursing, followed by immediately being pregnant again and nursing again, but I was sure I was not pregnant. I had peed on three home pregnancy tests and all of them were negative. But when I started Googling beer guts on women without beer, (laughs) I decided that maybe I should work out with a trainer. And so I signed myself up for a bikini body challenge at my gym. One late October evening, Chris and I were planning to go out for a date night, and on a whim, I bought a new pack of pregnancy tests at the grocery store since I had used my last one. Before we went out, I wanted to make sure I wasn't pregnant so that I could enjoy a drink. I peed on a stick, and a very, very faint line appeared. I checked the insert, and it read, if you test early, your HGC levels may be low, and you'll see a faint positive line. I did some Googling, and I learned that a positive line, no matter how faint, is still a positive result. I checked my chart on my phone, and I concluded that I was probably only about four weeks along. We were excited, and we went out for dinner in a celebratory mood. I texted my mother-in-law to tell her the good news, that Jude and baby Caroline would have another sibling in about eight months or so. I called my OB the next day and asked if I could come in for an ultrasound to confirm the positive test and firm up the date. Even though I give birth at home, I like to have ultrasounds to make sure that everything is okay. I got to the doctor's office with Caroline in the stroller and Jude, who had just turned three, and the intake person said, Hey, I just, I just want to warn you. If you think you're only four weeks along, we may not be able to see anything today, so don't worry if we can't get a clear picture or see the flicker of the heartbeat. And then I realized, oh shoot, since I'm so early, they might have to do the ultrasound internally and Jude's just gonna stand there while they shove that thing inside of me. Yikes. Chris's office, luckily, was very nearby, so I called him and asked him to come so that he could step out with Jude if need be. Chris arrived and the tech said that they'd try the ultrasound on the outside first. We looked up at the large monitor on the wall and told Jude to look up too, and then I did a double take. I could see a spine and a skull instead of a little blob. The image of the baby filled up the entire screen and went off of the screen. The tech asked, would you like to know the gender today? How far along am I? Some cooking and about 18 weeks, she said. (laughs) I was flabbergasted. 
I would later learn that the negative tests I took at home had expired. I had had them since before Jude. And I learned that HGC goes down in your second trimester. And then I would ask my trainer to destroy my before photos. And then I quit the fitness challenge. We found out we were having a girl. And then my mind started spinning. Over the last 18 weeks, how much have I had to drink? Did I eat a lot of sushi or lunch meat? Since my pregnancy was already halfway over, did I have enough time to adjust our house to accommodate another baby? What do we need to change immediately? It was a shock and it was a blessing. But once I became aware, I could no longer become unaware. I tell you this story because a couple years ago, when I worked for Coffee and Crumbs, I got to interview Latasha Morrison, the founder of Be the Bridge, which is a nonprofit organization that focuses on racial reconciliation and trains organizations, churches, small groups, and individuals to be bridge builders, that is, to cross the divide and help close the gap in their communities when it comes to systemic racism. At the time, this interview happened in January of 2018. I assumed that I wasn't racist because, well, because I'm Thai and Native American, I'm a nice person, and I'm a Christian with a heart for global social justice. Here's the thing that you should know about me. I get very nervous before I have to interview an author, and and I used to obsess and overprep because I was terrified of coming off as unprepared or aloof or inconsiderate. I took prepping for my interview with Tasha very, very seriously. Before our conversation, this was before she had her amazing book, which came out last year, I completed their introduction module called Whiteness 101, Foundational Principles Every White Bridge Builder Needs to Understand, and I joined their active Facebook group to try to learn more. You guys, I don't say this about a lot of things, but doing this changed my life. Just like when I found out I was pregnant with Lucy and started asking, okay, what did I do that was detrimental before I knew I was pregnant, and how do I change my life today? The same thoughts started swirling around about having all these implicit biases that I did not know I had. Here's just one example that's recent. I remember asking a woman from church, Stephanie, if she had an American Girl doll growing up because I was considering getting one of the historical ones for Caroline. Stephanie said that she had Addie growing up. And I said, the black one? Why? I was just so confused as to why a parent would buy a $100 doll in the 90s that didn't look anything like their daughter. Like, why the black doll? I tell this story not to confess so that I feel better about it. I'm embarrassed by it, but I'm telling you this to illustrate my complete ignorance. Being a minority did not excuse me from being racist. Before this training, I had a bad view of the terms white fragility and white privilege. I'm a nice person. I I stake a lot of my identity on being likable and kind and open-minded. So these terms, these terms felt harsh and mean to me. I'm only 25% white, but I still chafed against those words. But then the training. I learned that those terms are descriptions of a system that is broken and not a judgment of my character. I need not take those terms personally, but to let those words make me aware. I knew that I, me personally, Indian Adams, did not cause this broken system, but I learned that I benefit from it and that I unwittingly participate in it and therefore I help keep this broken system in place. 
As a believer, it is my ultimate prayer that I am made more like Christ. I became a Christian because I was drawn to who Jesus is. He is a disruptor, a champion of those that are seen as less than. He was an enemy of the state. He dismantled divisions and was killed for it. When I did Tasha's study, it was the first time that I saw racism as a spiritual battle and not a political one or one that I could just write off as, oh, racist, that's just something poor, uneducated old people are. And I became determined to eradicate it brick by brick in my own life. I think I know how I got here, and maybe one day I can share that story, maybe next week in the newsletter, but... I want instead to let my friend Jarrell tell you hers. Jarrell is a part of the Exhale community, which is a creative community for moms owned by Ashley Gadd, who also founded Coffee and Crumbs. Jarrell is a writer, and she has a beautiful blog at jarrelleverett.com. That's two R's, two L's, and two T's, and I've linked her website in the show notes. This week, Michael Day, who is a part of the Birds on a Wire community, which is the Christian ministry that I work for that serves moms, Michael Day shared that she had done an Instagram Live with Jarrell. The topic? Black mom and white mom on how to talk to your kids about race. I tuned in, and again, I learned so much. Then I saw that Jarrell and I had like 20 mutual friends, so I did that thing where you click over and you start looking at all their links, and basically in a very short amount of time, I decided that I loved everything this woman does. I reached out and I asked her if there was anything I could do to amplify her work, and she pointed me to her most recent blog post called On Racism and Raising Beautiful Black Babies. I thought it best if you heard Jarrell read it herself. Back in my pre-mom days, I used to go on girls' trips pretty often. One summer, I went on a trip to Vegas. I could hardly remember any details from the trip, why we were there, who all was in the group, but I do have one vivid memory. I was walking down the strip with one of my oldest friends and a couple of other girls. If my memory serves me right, I was the only black girl in the group. It was the middle of the day and we had been out shopping. We were on the sidewalk, headed back to our hotel, and a small group of black men were headed towards us. I don't remember much about them, only that they were walking down the strip just like us. Maybe they were also shopping or headed to a pool party. Maybe they were looking for a group of women to party with. I'm not sure. But my friend made it clear that she didn't want to find out. As soon as she spotted them, she whispered, Black guys, black guys, grabbed one of the other girls by the hand and rushed our group across the street to our hotel before they could get too close. It took me a while to unpack how I felt in that moment, but mostly I was shocked. Shocked that she said it. This girl I grew up with. This girl who once yelled at a boy at tennis camp for teasing me about my big lips and making me cry. Shocked that she said it in front of me. Did she forget, after so many years of friendship, that I was black too? I was shocked that these men, who were probably paying us zero attention, made her nervous when she had been around the black men in my family and in our friend circle a thousand times. I was offended. Offended that men with skin the same color as mine seemed scary, but the many groups of white men we encountered that weekend didn't elicit the same response. I was sad. I was embarrassed. I was hurt. But I said nothing. Partly because I'm extremely non-confrontational. Partly because I didn't want her to be embarrassed. But mostly because at the time, I didn't know what to say. This was the first time anyone so close to me had ever said or done anything like that. 
I love this friend dearly. She is family to me, and I hold no grudge against her. But that memory is the only thing I can remember from that trip. And those two words, whispered without thinking, have colored our relationship ever since. Ella, my baby girl, is walking now. She's 15 months old, not a baby anymore, but also not quite a toddler. She spends all of her waking hours chasing her big sisters and yelling for more food. So naturally, I have baby fever. As difficult as it is to have three little kids to mother, my heart aches for another baby to hold. We aren't ready to start trying again yet, but we've been talking about it a lot lately. We have been praying for a son. I love being a girl mom, and Sam loves being a girl dad, but we also long for a baby boy. Recently, though, when every morning we wake up to more heartbreaking news and more jarring examples of racism in our country, I had to confess to Sam that I'm nervous. What if we are blessed with a boy next time? I had to admit that I'm afraid to bring a beautiful black boy into the world we're living in now. What if he makes the mistake of walking through a construction site while he's out on a jog? What if he writes a bad check? What if someone calls the police on him while he's bird watching? What if someone shoots him while he's sitting on a couch in his own apartment? What if he takes a guy's trip to Vegas for his 21st birthday and a white woman on the street is afraid of him? I know all of these things could happen to my beautiful black daughters too, but my own life experience tells me that they won't ever seem as threatening or violent as their brother would. Sam assured me that our son would be protected by the son, and I know it's true, but I can't shake the pit in my stomach. I can't pretend that I'm not tempted to change my prayer and ask for another girl. I can't stop aching for the mothers of black boys. Lord, please protect our children. Please change the hearts of those who don't see them the way that you see them. I have been praying that prayer ever since I learned that George Floyd cried out, Mama. I am thankful for writers like Jarrell who choose to bear the emotional weight of sharing their heart in a public space so that others may learn empathy and compassion and be motivated to action. Today, my goal with this episode is threefold. First, I want to encourage you to keep moving forward imperfectly. I won't pretend to not know who listens to today, by the way. I serve an audience of mothers, mothers from all walks of life who live all around the world, but the majority of my audience is American, leans Christian, and is mostly white. And that makes sense. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad anyone is here. For the longest time, my aunt was the only person who enjoyed the things I made online. So if that's you, if I just described you, American, Christian, white, I know that this week on social media has been a whole mix of things with the outpouring of supporting Black Lives Matter and the media highlighting protests and riots and unrest. One of my dear friends, who happens to be white, put it so honestly. She said, I am listening, I am trying to do the right thing, but I just don't know if I'm doing it right, so I have a hard time saying anything at all. And I feel that. I heard I should put a black square on my Instagram grid, so I did. Then I heard that that was shallow. I heard that I should shut off my social media account and the podcast until June 7th. But then I heard I should use my channel to elevate melanated voices. But then I heard I shouldn't ask black women to educate my audience, but instead I should do the work and push our audience to be more responsible for educating themselves. But then I heard that I shouldn't make the content about me. 
I heard don't use the Black Lives Matter hashtag unless you're black. I heard don't quote Martin Luther King Jr. I heard stop correcting well-meaning people if they're not a close friend. And finally, finally, I just had to remember that I'm not going to get this perfect. You're not going to get this perfect. Growth comes over time and we're going to make mistakes. We just have to keep moving forward. Second, Our first community challenge this week is to do something proactive instead of something reactive. I believe that we have to do more than just run 2.23 miles to honor Ahmed Aubrey or sign an online petition for Breonna Taylor or post a graphic of George Floyd or Black Square for Blackout Tuesday. Those are good things to do to spread awareness and to show honor, but those are things that are reactive. Those are things that are a response to a call. Yes, absolutely do those things, but that's just the first step. The next step is to do something proactive. Maybe you want to join a Be The Bridge group or their Facebook community to learn more. Maybe you want to read a book alongside a friend and pray for an open mind to receive the information inside. Maybe you're in a position where you can donate to a cause or pay a Black educator or someone who has helped you in this journey. Third, and this is my big hope out of this episode and the hardest challenge. My second challenge to our community is to widen your circle and press companies to do likewise. Whenever I look at a brand on Instagram or a company that has a blog or a publication, so so not an influencer who is an individual who is mainly featuring herself and her own family, I'm talking about something that serves a community with content or is trying to sell me something or get me to join something. I count how many squares it's been since a person of color is pictured. On Instagram, you can see nine squares at one time. If I have to scroll down three screens, so 27 photos, before I see a not-white person, I assume that brand is not for me. There was a conference that sounded really good on paper last year, but when they had no speakers that were a minority race, and not a single person on their small staff was a minority, and not a single person of color was in any of their promo materials, and it took me 81 photos until I saw a hand that could have maybe been a hand of a not-white person, I concluded that that conference was not for me, and I did not attend. Here's an experiment. If your favorite Instagram accounts posted a square dedicated to racial reconciliation, either a black square for Blackout Tuesday or a square saying how they're listening and learning or praying, count back 27 squares. Is there a person of color in them at all? If you really want to do this right, count back starting in May before the Ahmed Aubrey case started getting national attention. But if you want the brand to have a little more wiggle room here, Count back starting after their first Black Lives Matter post. Okay, so in 27 squares, that's three swipes, did you see a person of color? If you didn't, let's give them some grace. Try again, but now only count the photos of people or parts of people, like hands or feet, pictures where you can see some skin. Count back 27. How about now? Right now, the United States is said to be 60% white, 17% Hispanic, 14% Black, and 6% Asian, with the other 3% identifying as two or more races or Native American, Alaskan Native, or Pacific Islander. So, just using a simple population stat in a subset of 27 photos of people, if a brand is trying to be exactly representative of the U.S. population in a low estimate 
Four of those photos should feature someone who is Hispanic, three should feature someone who is Black, and one should feature someone who is Asian. If there are zero people of color in 27 photos, it's time to start asking why. And listen, you may know that I'm the social media director for a ministry that serves mostly white women, and I have messed up here. We choose mostly stock images, but I'm the one who ultimately signs off on our content, and I've failed this test. I need to do a better job. I am giving this challenge to myself as much as anyone else. Okay, now your turn. Look at the brands and the influencers and podcast hosts you follow. Is it time for you to diversify your feed? Here's the good news. There's so many lists coming out of designers or food bloggers or writers or illustrators or fashion bloggers or whatever you're into who are black. You have to be proactive to follow them because a lot of them haven't gotten the chance to be amplified yet. Someone once told me that she couldn't find black content creators. And you know what? There's so many explanations onto why that is. I mean, some of the reasons being they aren't often given the national stage or big brand partnership to elevate their profile. But I used to run a bloggers conference a long time ago, and I am here to tell you they've been alongside us making content this whole time. We just have to do better at sharing the spotlight and following them and elevating their voices. No matter the size of your social media network, you still wield influence. Some would argue maybe even more influence than a professional influencer because your content isn't sullied by ad dollars. Your friends know that your shares are authentic. So if you find and enjoy the work of a content creator whose race is often underrepresented, use your influence and share that content. Before I go, I want you to play a little game with me. Maybe you've seen it on TikTok. Maybe you haven't, but I'm going to play a clip of the white privilege call out. You start with all 10 fingers in the air and play along. Check your privilege edition. Put a finger down if you have been called a racial slur. Put a finger down if you've been followed in a store unnecessarily. Put a finger down if someone has crossed the street to avoid passing you. Put a finger down if you've had someone clinch their purse in an elevator with you. Put a finger down if you've had someone step off of an elevator to keep from riding with you. Put a finger down if you've been accused of not being able to afford something expensive. Put a finger down if you have had fear in your heart when being stopped by the police. Put a finger down if you have never been given a pass on a citation that you deserved. Put a finger down if you have been stopped or detained by police for no valid reason. Put a finger down if you have been bullied solely because of your race. Put a finger down if you have been denied service solely because of the color of your skin. Put a finger down if you've ever had to teach your child how not to get killed by the police. Any fingers left? That's privilege. This audio was created by Big Boss Mama on TikTok, and she asked, any fingers up? I have seven fingers up. The first time I saw this, I watched Steven Twitch Boss, who is black, and his wife, Allison Holker Boss, who is white, play. Twitch had no fingers up before it was over, and Allison had all of her fingers up. What about you? How many fingers did you have up at the end? Any? That's privilege. If you're like me and you've spent this week trying to learn more about what this all means and you're feeling a little beat up and you're nervous that you won't get it right, keep going. Hang in there. Educate yourself and evaluate your biases and identify how they've come out in the past, but move forward in hope. Do the work and just know. Just know that things are going to change for the better. Okay, friend, 
That is it for today. You may have noticed there was no ad break or a segment for a good time, good deal. Thrive Cosmetics would have been today's advertiser, but okayed me breaking my contract this week. It felt tone deaf to have an ad partner today, so instead, I am donating what they would have paid me to be the bridge, as well as 100% of the affiliate money Today By The Way makes in the entire month of June. And for today's good time, good deal, you can stream the film Just Mercy, based on the life work of civil rights attorney Brian Stevenson, for free on a variety of streaming platforms. It's a great resource for those who are interested in learning more about the systemic racism that plagues our society. Show notes with some links to resources are at todaybytheway.com slash episodes, and you can follow Jarrell on Instagram at J-E-R-R-E-L-L-E-V-E-R-E-T-T, Jarrell Everett, and her website is jarrelleverett.com. And listen, back in 2018, the interview we did with Latasha Morrison at that time was one of our lowest listened to episodes in the history of the show, and it broke my heart. But I have some good news for you. On Wednesday, Be The Bridge said that on their Facebook group, they do a welcome post once or twice a week around every 100 new people who join the group. In this last month, 20,000 new people have joined. That's incredible. I have seen Black Lives Matter marches in my little hometown, and I saw it today in my mostly white suburb. Maybe 2020 has been an awful year so far, but maybe, just maybe, it's ushering in hope and change and revolution and unity. Today is a new day, and friend, I'm cheering the world on.